Hello and welcome to The Global Insight from Control Risks, the specialist risk consultancy. I'm Claudine Fry. And I'm Charles Hecker. This is the podcast where we try to explain what's going on in the world and what it means for business. Chuck, we've been following events in China particularly closely, haven't we? Keeping an eye on the Chinese Communist Party National Congress and following what our colleagues are telling us about the significance and implications of that important event. We want to unpack in this edition of the Global Insight what the implications of the recent Chinese Communist Party Congress mean for the way that China will project itself on the world stage. That's right, Claudine. We've been focusing an awful lot of attention on China lately, and it throws up what I think is a little bit of a paradox. Um, Whether it's us and our team of analysts, or whether it's the newspapers, or the media, or whether it's other countries and other political institutions, China is one of the most picked over countries in the world, yet remains opaque. Claudine, fasten your seatbelts. We're going to start in China. We're going to jump on some hotspots. And then we're going to go to one of the most intense geopolitical rivalries of the era. As we were pointing out for a long time before the Congress, it's not a policymaking event, but people still look to it for big indications. In terms of what was actually said and and written at the Congress, it's much more about continuity on big policy themes than it was about any change. That's Andrew Gillum, a principal in the firm and Control Risk's most senior China analyst. I guess there was two big questions going into the Congress. One of them was about basically personnel and and power politics. There was some speculation throughout this year that because of things like the state of the economy and all the difficulties with with lockdowns and the zero COVID policy, maybe Xi Jinping was under pressure and would have to make some kind of concessions or, or compromise or, or face some pushback that would be visible at the at the Congress, and he he might be um, constrained in some way. The other questions were about what the implications for for policy going forward would be on that personnel and power side. We got a very clear and emphatic answer, which is that Xi Jinping is pretty much not constrained, did not make any compromises, um, appears to have faced little pushback or little effective pushback. Um, And just about, you know, every personnel and other major decision that came out of the Congress seems to have um, gone his way. Can you Give us a sense of the extent to which Taiwan featured at the Congress. Yeah, there was quite a bit of um, media focus on this uh, because there were there was phrases from Xi Jinping in his report to the Congress and his speech to the Congress about reiterating the importance of reunification with Taiwan and reiterating that China uh, reserves the right to, to to use force if if necessary, um, even though. It, Peaceful reunification is its uh, what it describes as its preferred a- approach. The headlines that that generated were a bit unwarranted because that's always been the, the the position, certainly for a very long time. So again, in terms of what was said, not really anything new there. People are always trying to read a timeline into uh, Beijing's intentions towards Taiwan. 
there doesn't seem to be one, or at least there's very poor evidence for one. Again, it was reiteration of what uh, what we already knew, which is that it has been getting uh, more and more uh, of a tense issue for the last couple of years now, at least, particularly this year. And uh, a lot of the drivers of that are coming out of the out of the US um, as as much as they are out of Beijing. So that's still a big one um, to watch for 2023. All the questions we get from clients about Taiwan are always about, you know, basically, is there going to be a war? And what we're constantly trying to remind people is that that is uh, extremely unlikely, barring some some major change in approach from the US. And, you know, there's big questions about that being quite credible beyond 2024, potentially, uh, which is perhaps beyond the scope of what we're talking about today. But in the meantime, the other big scenarios that um, you know businesses should really be worrying about are the many and varied levers that China um, could pull to um, to escalate things, or rather, increase the pressure, increase the deterrent to what they see as as creeping erosion of the status quo on Taiwan, with all these um, tools short of military means, or at least short of of war. Um, whether that involves, you know, a increase in cyber activity or use of import and export controls and sanctions, um, or just an increase in um, in military exercises and the, you know the, the frequency and scale of them in a way that um, makes the kind of brief panic that we saw in August after Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan um, a more uh, frequent occurrence or, or or more like the the baseline so there's all sorts of things that could happen there um none of which were answered at the at the congress but all of which should be very much in focus for the the coming year one of the constraints on his position and authority outside of china has got to be the relationship with the united states um take us through that a little bit what's changed since the congress uh, and what should we be thinking about for the sort of near and middle term in that relationship? So one of the big themes or, or vibes from Xi's report to the, the Congress, when you compare it to the 2017, the previous Congress and, and the report that, that he made to that Congress, um, as I said, most of it, you know, the, the, the overwhelming sense is continuity. But if, the, if there's one thing that you would pick out, or two things that you would pick out probably is, as change in um, in atmospherics, it's even more talk about the, the the risky, difficult, dangerous environment that China faces in the coming five years, um, and it talk about you know storms and and waves and dangers ahead. Uh, no explicit mention of the U.S. because that's not that's not how they. They, they word these things, but clearly all about this sense of threats, geopolitical uncertainties, and being under assault from the US and, and its allies. And that came through very strongly. And of course, closely related to that was even more on the theme of uh, needing to insulate China in terms of industry, economy, uh, technology. So that that was a big theme and and that's nothing new it's just a doubling down on what we what we already knew um but the other big development around the same time as the congress and a, and a much more concrete one was the latest round of export controls and other 
regulations from the, the Biden administration targeting um, China's semiconductor industry and some other areas like like AI and, and, and supercomputing. And this is really the next level up in terms of what China would consider an escalation in what it calls the, the weaponization of legal and, and regulatory tools by by the US. Um, and it's a big step up in you know what we saw previously from the Trump administration. So far, China hasn't really reacted to this. Um, and that's probably because it doesn't have any good options for reacting or, or retaliating. It's got plenty of tools and, and again, levers that it could pull to do so, but all of them carry very significant um, sort of costs and, and risks and collateral damage at a time when the economy is in just about its worst shape for, for decades. Um, so for all the, the sort of show of, of strength and, and confidence, and as you say, relatively unconstrained domestic um, ability to to maneuver politically, um, yeah, that there's definitely a sense of um, of risk and, and vulnerability and, and challenges ahead uh, when it comes to dealing with the the U.S. and and importantly now many other countries. This isn't just about U.S.-China relations anymore. Andy, so you you mentioned um, no compromises when you talked about the way that she has consolidated her position domestically, but clearly. Um, a much more of a balancing act when it comes to foreign policy. Andy, talk us through China's position with respect to the Ukraine conflict. Well, basically, China's in the same position now that we described it as being in in, in the first weeks of the conflict, which is um, this highly conflicted um, set of, of interests and, and priorities where um, I, I know the, the perception is that China is uh, very closely aligned with and very closely supporting Russia on this issue. But I think if, if you look more closely, its position is um, much more defined by the, the, the limits on what was called the, the no limits partnership. Um, so China has been very carefully limiting the type and degree of support that it's been giving, mostly in the um, sort of political and rhetorical and diplomatic sphere, and very cautiously in the uh, non, non-sanctions breaching areas of the economic relationship. Um, and in return for that uh, sort of self-restraining approach, uh, the US has also kind of left China alone in terms of um, you know not really pushing the threat of secondary sanctions on on China, not not really picking a fight with China over this issue any more than it needs to. And so we've been in that sort of awkward um, sort of awkward balance ever ever since. Um, and we we don't really see even now any short term likelihood of that um, changing of either side doing something to sort of bring a, a more direct escalation in US China tensions specifically on this issue. So I think next steps depend a lot on what happens in Ukraine, on on what um, Moscow's next moves are, and we see a lot of. Um, speculation about you know 
what China's position would be in the event of various types of escalation by by Russia um, and the degree to which China could and and would seek to um, discourage those. Uh, and I, I think it, it would take something very major to shift China's position on this because they don't want to get caught in the middle of it. Uh, Xi Jinping, for all his closeness to, to Russia and their very strong desire to make sure that this whole episode does not um, in the long term turn out to be kind of a, a triumph for Western unity and the use of you know sanctions and coordinated economic coercion uh, because obviously China fears it will be next. So they don't want to see that. They also don't want to, to, to get um, caught in the middle of it any more than they already are. So I think we'll see that tightrope walk continue into 2023 unless there's a, a big change on the ground that forces the hand of, of either side. Andy, I think you used the word partnership in the way you referred to the relationship between Russia and China. And yes, we were told that this was a a no limit partnership. Um, aside from the details about how much oil China might take or how much gas China might take, what's your view on um, how genuine, how strategic, how thorough and how much trust there is between these two countries? And give us an idea of what to expect from that relationship, um, regardless of, of the fine print going forward. First of all, I think there's probably a difference in the relationship between the, the two countries and how we would, you know, so on paper, account the different, the pros and cons and where their interests align and um, and where they clash versus the relationship between the two leaders. Um, and, you know, I don't want to make too much of that because ultimately we, we, we don't know, um, but they have interacted over a very long period of time now and do um, seem to be in different ways invested in the relationship and it's often suggested um, um, in the China watching community that um, a lot of people in foreign policy circles in Beijing are much less enthusiastic about the, um, the, the, the increased closeness to to Russia than the top leadership is. Um, and, and that's probably connected to the trend that we've seen in the last few years of um, a shift in, you know, if you like, the old school diplomatic and Ministry of Foreign Affairs um, community and, and their influence over foreign policy um, versus um, some other elements of the of the leadership and the, and the, the party that are now probably more influential. So there's a, a shift there. But I, th I think, again, you know, it's this very awkward, very conflicted situation. And that's always been the case with China-Russia relations. You know, they, they share an enormous border. Um, there are, you, you know, mutual suspicions, uh, both historically and looking at the future and, and looking at their respective positions in Central Asia, in, in East Asia and other parts of the, of the world um, that are not that are not going away. Um, China does not want to completely, you know, should, and will not and has not put put all their energy security eggs in in the Russian basket. You know, there's a, a big limit to how far they're moving in that direction. Uh, 
Russia, I'm sure, is is very sensitive to the 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 perception of them becoming. You know, you see things in the media about becoming a vassal state to to China. So there's clear tensions there, and and as I said, clear limits on the the no limits partnership. But I think for um, you know, at least in the coming year, in this geopolitical environment, the most immediately pressing um, concern for 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 both leaders um, is making sure that they don't see uh, you know 2022 2023 in retrospect as a, a triumph of U.S. led Western unity and you know greatly and, and and permanently undermining the the clout and credibility of Russia or or China. And yeah, Andy, we, we talk a lot about the shared interest, clearly, of, of Beijing and Moscow there and the very poor state of relationships between China, parts of Europe, Australia and the US. And yet we're just, we've just had a very high, high profile visit by German Chancellor Olaf Scholz into China. What does that tell us about where there are areas of alignment and agreement and compromise between parts of the West and China? Yeah, that visit... I think has been a, a really good sort of symbol of, of how complex and, and messy this whole situation is because, again, the story of the year in a way has been, as I said, one of US-led Western unity, you know, the, the US returning um, to that role, everybody being surprised about um, how much cooperation there was, you know, within Europe and then with the US and, you know, the likes of Japan, Australia, more recently, South Korea as well. Um, and that being sort of a, a blueprint for how they might cooperate um, also on certain areas of of China policy. But that particularly when viewed from, from this part of the world, from Asia, I think that unity looks very fragile. Um, and I think Schultz's visit to China and the reaction um, in in Germany and in other parts of of Europe, the criticism he's he's had, um, is a sign of you know how difficult it would be to sustain that unity or to extend it to um, less sort of existential and immediately high priority issues like like Ukraine, because um, Scholz I think was obviously keen to shore up the relationship with. With China, um, particularly on the economic front, you know, he took the the heads of some of Germany's biggest companies who are among the biggest foreign investors in China. Um, and, uh, you know, I guess it was a symbol in a way of having an, an independent foreign policy from the US and the fact that China is not Russia uh, and that, that Germany is able to, to separate the two. But he, he got a lot of pushback um, by People, you know, suggesting that, that that's not appropriate, that it doesn't um, reflect the reality of how much the relationship with China has changed, et cetera, et cetera. And you see that same kind of debate play out in multiple other countries, particularly those like Germany, like Japan, like South Korea, um, and, and several European countries who have this extremely conflicted relationship with China, whether, you know, the economic relationship um, is very close and, and very important and the security relationship is, um, is, is much more difficult. So again, 
2024 and what happens with the, the U.S. Um, is this huge question on the horizon. How long will the the U.S. play the role that it's playing right now? How long will, will Europe maintain this this unity and we're asking that question a lot with regard to the approach to Ukraine and Russia. Um, I think it's also still um, an unanswered question on on China, um, and and this is all obviously closely interconnected because it's particularly you know this, at the same time the, the sort of the atmosphere in in Europe after the Ukraine invasion is much more receptive to um, you know. Being tough on China, looking at supply chain security, cooperating with the U.S., etc., cetera, etc., cetera. but simultaneously, it has made um, you know the importance of of Europe's economic um, relationships with China uh, even more important, given the difficulties within Europe on the energy front, etc. Awareness of political, country, and economic risks underpin your organization's ability to protect value and mitigate shocks. Whether you need consulting on a particular project or longer-term strategic, analytical, and forecasting resources, we can respond to your requirements face-to-face or through our online platform-based solutions. For more information, follow the link in the podcast notes. Andy, you've started to talk about some fairly business critical issues like supply chain. Um, Tell us a little bit now about what this means for business. What are you hearing from clients? What do you think you might be hearing or you should be hearing a little bit more about from clients? Um, Tell us about the business impact um, of some of the things that we've been discussing at a relatively high level so far. Well, Referencing, you know, back to one of the earlier themes in in this conversation, Taiwan has been the center of a lot of the conversations that we're having with clients in in this region about supply chains, um, because again, there's been a more immediate um, concern about that, uh, particularly with the, the the Pelosi visit in in August, and what we see is most of these clients. You know, they've been looking at supply chain security. They've been looking at diversification for years and years. First of all, in the context of the trade war and, and tariffs, and then in the context of, of export controls, and then suddenly in the context of um, you know relatively serious concerns about conflict risk, which makes it much more real and much more immediate. But because they've already looked at it for a long time, a lot of our clients, you know, they've already done kind of the low-hanging fruit of mitigation and diversification. There's no simple solutions or, or, or answers here. So you've got this, um, you know, the the sort of potential risks and, and geopolitical concerns coming coming up against the hard reality of you know costs, commercial concerns, and in particular, the sort of hard physical uh, constraints of what you can do about it in terms of moving um, production and, and manufacturing facilities. Um, or, you know, we have clients where they say, well, out of our top 10 suppliers of key product X, nine of them are in Taiwan. And the, the one that isn't in Taiwan um, itself is dependent on something else from Taiwan. So, you know, what do you do? And these are the kind of really complex dilemmas that um, that companies are wrestling with. But the more you get 
actions like the one we just have them from the Biden administration and the more this sense of you know that with board level waking up to geopolitical risk that we've had this year um I think the more you will see companies making major decisions um even quite costly ones and opportunity costly ones um be- because of fear of where things are going so um that is going to be i think central to the discussions we're having for the foreseeable future and it's not going to get any easier our clients are increasingly concerned about the us china relationship specifically but also about the extent to which they're going to be able to carry on operating across borders and in china china is so critical to the strategic growth plans of so many organizations that we work with Andy, what sort of um, questions are you getting from clients and is their concern well-placed? It is well-placed, yeah. Um, and there's usually a lot of internal dynamics within clients. You know, they, we talk to people whose job is to, to worry about and, and do something about risks, including some quite long-term risks or risks which may or may not be short-term or long-term. They don't know. Um, and then other people within the company are, are obviously focused on um, on, on sales, on, on market growth, and on you know the, the next quarter or the, the next year's performance on that front. And understandably, uh, don't want to compromise that um, because of things which might not happen. Um, so it, it's always really challenging um, for clients to, to, to deal with that. And in the short term, um, you know, as we always say when we're talking about, you know, our, our risk ratings and this kind of thing, risk is relative, right? It's relative to the opportunity and it's relative to the to the alternatives. So um, clients are right to be concerned because if you look at the fundamentals, um, both domestically and, and regionally and globally, things look pretty grim. Um, both for for China and specifically for you know the future of some foreign companies in China long term, for stability and um, you know disruption of supply chains and many other things in in the region, and um, you know relations, trade relations and, and economic and political relations globally. At the same time, relative to other countries. Um, arguably, China's um, economic outlook and market growth outlook, whilst it's terrible by its own standards, isn't bad compared to um, t- to many other parts of of the world. So, for a lot of clients, um, you know, they're they're still um, they're still committed to that. They're very worried about it, but it wouldn't make any sense for them to. You know, very few clients are having the conversation, should we just get out of China, yes or no? It's always more complicated than that. Um, and, and again, that's going to be the theme, really. So for a lot of uh, the, the conversations we have, it's about looking at um, you know, the scenarios across different timeframes and finding for you know, each sector, each project, industry, product, client, in their specific circumstances, where on that spectrum do they go between being in a position to still capitalize on the current and, and near-term and maybe long-term opportunities whilst also um, 
mitigating the the increasing risks um and there's things they can do about that increasingly there's also a more fundamental kind of elephant in the room of long term is there a place for us in this market are we going to have to make a really quite dramatic fundamental change even with all these costs and i think because some companies have been forced into those kind of dramatic changes and dramatic costs because of you know what what's happened completely beyond control the appetite to talk about doing it preemptively um is 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 greater or at least they're they're having those conversations and they're looking at it in much more practical ways than they were this time last year that's really interesting, Andy. It makes me think of some of the work that we've done together recently for clients on geopolitical forecasting, where actually the most likely scenarios are often far more nuanced and less bleak than our clients have been anticipating. But the devil really is in the detail and the opportunity is in the nuance. Andy, it remains only to say thank you and to remind our listeners that you're a frequent contributor to Asia in Focus, one of our other podcasts. But for this time, thank you very much for being a contributor to the Global Insight. Thanks a lot, Andy. Thanks, guys. See you next time. Thank you, Andy. If you liked what you heard on this episode of the Global Insight, make sure to subscribe. And don't forget to check out our other podcasts as well, like Decrypt, featuring our experts from across the world making sense of the cyber and technology issues impacting business. As always, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.